Wonderful, he knows our names, right? I have a question for you this morning. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when we live in a society and we live under a government that substitutes lies for truth, where lifelong liars are political leaders and unborn babies our personal inconveniences. What are we supposed to do when hate-filled racism is tolerated by authorities and leveraged by authorities? When judges of the law outlaw the law of God. When God ordained definitions of marriage, family, sexual identity, and integrity are redefined by civil leaders and, yes, sometimes by religious leaders. What are we supposed to do when righteousness gets rejected and perversion gets elected? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to do this. First Peter chapter two, verse 12. Everything I have just asked, everything that I have just described was experienced to our extent and more by the people to whom Peter was writing and they are the answer. These words are the answer to what are we supposed to do? First Peter chapter two, it's on page 1015 of the Bible provided for you there. Peter writes by the Holy Spirit these words of God. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as the servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. That is God's answer to the question. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do when we not only know that we are exiles, but we feel that we are exiles? What are we supposed to do when all things around us seem to be upside down, don't fit, don't agree with the compass that God has given us in his word and his spirit to guide us in our hearts. What are we supposed to do? Well, here we have God's answers to exiles. We're exiles. Home is not here, right? We are exiles, but we are citizens. What does it mean to be an exile and be a citizen? This is God's answer to the question, what are we supposed to do? And I want you to see, and you will see, I trust before we're done, that it's also God's solution to a world gone mad. It's God's solution. Now from the passage we've just read here, I want us to recognize that living as citizens and yet exiles means that there are principles that should guide us. There are, there are three principles that we're going to spend some time upon this morning. They're not just found in this text. They are here in the text, but they are found throughout the text of Scripture for God's people. There are, there are three principles to guide us as exiles on our way home. How to be exiles but be good citizens. Now, the first principle here is the principle of authority. The principle of authority. When I say authority, I mean the right to govern. Authority is the right to govern. And of course, the ultimate authority rests with God. That is divine authority. Jesus said something very powerful when he gave the great mission to us as his disciples in Matthew chapter 18, we call it the Great Commission, but sometimes we forget in Matthew 28, rather, verse 18, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Amen. <laughs> all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That doesn't leave much out, does it? He says, it's all been given to me. Jesus possesses sovereign authority. He alone is Lord. 
He alone has authority and dominion. Jesus has sovereign authority and Jesus Christ, because he possesses all authority, also is the source of all authority. And our Lord as the source of authority shares his authority. See, God shares his authority. That divine authority is shared on this earth and that is delegated authority. There is authority that has been delegated on this earth, but its source is divine, but it has been delegated. Delegated means it's been conferred. God has conferred this authority that is his to be carried out on this earth. Now, there are many examples of this delegated authority in the Bible. There is parental authority in the human family. Authority belongs to parents. Parents are to be obeyed and they are to be honored, not because they have earned it or deserved it. Whether they have or not, they possess a delegated authority from God. There's parental authority in the family, the human family. And there is also church authority in the spiritual family. God says as brothers and sisters in Christ, as we have been born into the family of God, as we assemble together for worship, that there is an authority given to the church to speak on behalf of God. We are given by the Spirit of God as his church with his word, we are given the authority to say what God says. And so we exhort one another. We rebuke as necessary one another. We encourage one another based on the authority of God. And then there's also another delegated authority, and this is what Peter is speaking about here. That is government authority. God has delegated, Christ has delegated his authority to human government. Now Jesus addressed this on several occasions, but perhaps the best known example of when Peter heard him talk about the authority of the government was when some religious leaders came to try to trick Jesus. They brought him a Roman coin and they asked him, tell us, is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar or not? And they thought they had Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. If he said, yes it is, then he would lose his influence with the Jewish people who despised that Roman oppression. If he said, no, then he would put himself as a rebel against the authority of Rome. So they thought they had him. And Jesus said, you hypocrites, why do you try to tempt me? Give me a coin. And he held it up. Whose image and whose inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then Jesus said this, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God, the things that are God's. 
Jesus recognized human authority. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Human government, there is an authority conferred upon human government that is to be recognized and respected by Jesus' followers. He directed them. He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And we may hate it that he was using taxes as an example, but he was. But under that authority of God's authority and the authority that is delegated comes the second principle. And this is what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about the second principle of responsibility. There's authority. That's to guide us as exiles. Divine authority and delegated authority on this earth. And then there is responsibility. As Christians, we have responsibility to recognize, to respect, and to respond to authority. We have a responsibility to the government. In Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, that's the classic text there. And we're not turning these passages, but I, I hope that you're jotting these references down because there, the Apostle Paul sets forth so clearly in Romans 13 that civil authorities, civil governments have their basis in God's authority. He has ordained them and established them, and they are to be respected by believers. Look at our text now. Peter picks up that responsibility. Verse 13. Look at our text. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That word institution. It's the only time it's translated that way. The, the, all the other times it's translated either creation or form, or structure. Here's what, here's what Peter is saying. Submit yourself as Christians to every human form of authority, structure of authority that God has delegated. It's God's command to us as his people that in whatever forms of government we live, wherever we live, there's a timeless truth here that we, for his sake, are to be submissive to that authority. That's a timeless principle. We have a responsibility to government. But now, our first responsibility is to God. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Render to God the things that are God's. Now, Peter could remember very clearly that he had put, been put in a situation along with other disciples where he had to make a choice to obey God and disobey the authorities. It happened to him and John on one occasion. It happened to him and all the disciples on another occasion. We're told about it in 
Acts chapter 4, verse 19, where they're commanded no longer to preach in the name of Jesus. And then later on in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, they are beaten and warned again to stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And what did Peter say? The man who wrote these words of our text, he said, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you or to listen to God, you be the judge. We cannot speak, but what we have seen and heard, we must obey God rather than men. That is the exception. As Christians, we are to submit to every form of human authority. Those are ordained by God, delegated by God. And we are to disobey when those authorities command us to do that which God has commanded should not be done or they command us not to do what God has commanded must be done. Now when, listen, when Peter was saying we must obey God rather than men, he was not talking about his personal convictions. We do not have the right to rebel against authority because of our personal convictions. You may have personal convictions concerning a style of government or a style of economics. You may have personal convictions that guide your life, but when we are to disobey the government is when the government is demanding that we disobey the commands of God. And friends, I want to give us all a wake-up call. My personal convictions are not equal to the law of God. And the personal convictions of talk radio hosts don't equal the law of God. The law of God is eternal and timeless. I may have personal convictions, and you know what? I may be sincerely wrong. But even if I'm right, I cannot disobey authorities over my personal convictions unless those personal convictions are based on the clear word of God. We need to be very careful. We don't fuel the fire of revolution over personal convictions. You have no place, I have no place to stand there. We stand on the word of God. But when government crosses the line from Caesar's area into the Lord's area, the things of the spirit, the things of worship and righteousness, then we must respectfully, peacefully disobey entrusting the outcome to God. There was an English pastor nearly 400 years ago. Incredibly godly man, 
incredibly used by the Lord, but England said, you've got to have a license to preach. And if you don't have a license, you've got to stop preaching. But that English pastor understood that the license would limit what he could say. That was the reason for the license. And so he said, no. They said, we'll put you in jail. He said, you may put me in jail, but I will not receive the license. He continued preaching. And you know what? They put him in jail. 12 years. 12 years while his wife and four children struggled in poverty. All he had to do was sign a license and he'd be free. People would gather around the jail and he'd preach through the windows. They'd shut up the windows. He'd preach so loud they'd hear him through the wall. <laughs> 12 years. And oh yes, I forgot to tell you, while he was in jail, he wrote a little book. Second best seller to the Bible of any book ever written. A Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan. A book published more than any other book except the Bible. And a book written in imprisonment, but it has brought liberty to tens of thousands over the centuries. My friends, listen. The word of God is not bound. You are freer in prison obeying the Lord than you are walking the streets of Knoxville and living for yourself. True freedom is in Christ. There's the principles that are to guide us. What are we to do? <laughs> We're guided by the principle of authority, divine authority, delegated authority, responsibility, responsibility to government and responsibility to God, but we're also guided by the great principle of liberty. <laughs> Peter talks about these people being free. Verse 16, you are free people. Live as free people. The birthright of every Christian is spiritual liberty. If the Son of Man sets you free, you're really free. There's a whole book of the New Testament written about our freedom. What is that book? It's, it's the book of Galatians. The whole book is about our freedom in Jesus Christ. And Paul says in that letter to the Galatians, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. You have been freed for freedom. But here's the question, church. What is freedom? What is freedom? Well, someone say, well, freedom is the is the ability to do what you want. That's not freedom. Doing what you want isn't freedom. Doing what you want is bondage. Bondage. 
What is freedom? Listen, true liberty is not the right to do what you want. True liberty is the privilege to do what is right. That's what liberty is. It's not the right to do what you want. It's the privilege through Christ as his servant to do what is right. We have liberty, but what is our liberty for? Well, Paul tells us, we have the liberty to do two incredible things. We are free to love and to serve. We are free to love and to serve. Galatians 5, 13. You wanna hear a definition of true liberty? Listen, for you were called to freedom. Brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. What is the great privilege of freedom? To love God and love people and to serve God by serving people. That is true liberty. To live for your own rights and privileges is only to live in bondage and slavery. We're free. You see, friends, love, when the love of Christ comes in your heart, it moves you. It moves us. It moves us from have to to get to. And I want to tell you, breakthrough has happened in your life when you can move from thinking as a Christian you have to do this or that, to the reality you get to. Now you're free. No one's free who goes around thinking, I have to do this, I have to do this. We are free to love and serve. Three guiding principles to guide us. Authority, responsibility, and liberty, and they guide us. What do they guide us to? The principles guide us to practices and say, this is what I want you to see. Look at our text, chapter two of 1 Peter. Notice these practices that are to define us. What is to define our lives? When you live in an upside down world like these people did. When you're considered criminals as they were. When you're, you're considered not to be an answer to problems, but you are the problem. How, how, how do you live? What, what kind of practices? How, what's, what's to define you? Well, I began the message with that question. What are we supposed to do? And it's all summarized. The answer is summarized in verse 17. Here's what we're supposed to do. One brief verse, four short directives. Here's what we're to do. He says in verse 17, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's look at those. These are our practices. This is what is to direct us. Honor everyone, respect everyone. What does everyone mean? What, what, what's, the, what's the Greek underneath that, Sam? Everyone. Honor 
everyone, every human being is made in the image of God. And we are to respect them because of the one who has created them. Our attitude is to be one of respect. Our action is to do good. Paul said, as you have opportunity, do good to what? All men. Attitude, honor, action, do good. Honor everyone. Second directive, love the brotherhood, or literally it's present tense, be loving the brotherhood. This moves from honor to affection because now we're moving into our family. The brotherhood means the family, the family of God. We're to have a tender devotion to one another and what a powerful witness that is, right? What did Jesus say? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have what? Love one for another. Wherever you live, you have the freedom to love. Nobody can take that freedom from you. Honor the everyone, love the brotherhood. Number three, fear God. Literally again, be fearing God, honor and love. What does that equal? With God, it means fear. What is fear? What does it mean to fear God? We talked about this a few weeks ago. It means reverential love. It means to rejoice in an awestruck way before God and you rejoice with trembling. It's reverential love. Honor everyone. Be loving the brotherhood. Be fearing God. Here's number four. Be honoring the emperor. Be honoring the emperor. Now question. Who was the emperor? When Peter wrote this, who was the emperor? Nero. A madman. He was. He was the emperor of Rome. He was a madman. But his position as emperor, his position had been given to him by God his authority was ordained by God. God did not approve of Nero's lifestyle. Not even close. But Nero represented God-ordained authority. And Peter said, you don't have to be agreeing with the emperor. Does it say that? Agree with the emperor? No. It says, honor the emperor. There are many people in political office that quite personally, I don't agree with practically anything that they do or say, but if they entered a room where I was, I'd stand to my feet and I would respect the office that God has given 
We have to recognize that when elections are held, God's not on vacation. God, excuse me, doesn't have a divine palm to forehead. What am I going to do now? No. God ordains rulers. It's throughout the Bible. Rulers that don't know him, he ordains. Like Pharaoh and Cyrus. Nebuchadnezzar. Augustus Caesar, Nero. Says, be honoring the emperor. I can imagine when the disciples in Asia Minor, remember, he's writing this for the disciples in Asia Minor. He's in Rome and he's sending it over to modern day Turkey. And I can remember when they, I, I can just imagine, can't you, when they, when they read this letter out loud in those house churches, can't you imagine when they got to this, they would have gone, really, Peter? Really? Like some of you this morning. Really, Sam? <laughs> really? I'm just reading the Bible. Be honoring the emperor. Should we do this with reluctance? Should we do these practices of, of honoring the emperor, of, of loving the brotherhood, of fearing God, of honoring all men? Should we do this with reluctance and resignation? No. No. Why? Because God has purposes that should inspire us. There's purposes at work that should inspire us. Why does God call us to do these things? Why does he tell us in this crazy world to live like this? Well, there are purposes that should inspire us. Living by these principles and these practices Accomplish two Christ-exalting purposes. And look at the two Christ-exalting purposes. When we live by these principles and by these practices, number one, silence. We will silence. We can silence the lies. Silence the lies. Look at verse 15. You might not like the other verses, but you might like this one. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Honestly, haven't you just looked at your television screen sometimes and just thought, oh, shut up. Shut up, shut up, shut up. My wife says sometimes, Sam, you're talking to the television again. I know it. I know. It's interesting here. How do we do that? You say, shut up. How do you do that? The word, the word silence here means to muzzle. The, the ignorance, which means the animosity of stupid people. That's what it means. The animosity of stupid people. People, how do you muzzle that? Well, you listen, you gag them with godliness. The word here means gag. How do you gag them? By a godly life. 
because they can argue with anything that you want to put out there. They will sound bite it. They will take it apart, take it out of context, turn it inside, upside down. They can do that, but they can't do anything with your life that shines. That is as clear as can be. You want to shut people up? Gag them with godliness. Silence the lies by the way that we live. And then, folks, what's the heart of Christ? Aren't we Christians? What's the heart of Christ? For people nailing him to the cross. What's his heart? His heart is to save the lost. He wants us by the way we live our lives to silence the lives, but he, he wants us to save the lost. Verse 12, look at this. Keep your conduct. Conduct means man of life. Keep your manner of life among the Gentiles, that is people who do not know God, Keep your manner of life among those who do not know God as honorable. And the word honorable here means attractive, winsome. It means a life that displays beauty. It displays righteousness. It, it's attractive. So that when they speak against you as evil doers. They speak against you as evildoers. Where do the hospitals come from? Where did they start? Where did the Red Cross start? Where did the YMCA start? Where did the battle against racism and slavery start? Where do all the things that lift society out of hell start? It starts with Christians. And what do they say? You're evildoers. And what are we to do? Get ticked off? Get a microphone that we can speak into and spew into? Stir up more anger and division? No. They're going to speak against you as evildoers even though you do good. But your prayer is this, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I learned something this week. Have I had a week that I actually learned something in a long time? It's just, it's just difficult. I always thought this verse of scripture meant on the day of visitation, the day when people stand before God, they'll glorify God because of the way you live your life. Yeah, you gotta live your life for God now so that when they stand before God and give an account, you can stand over on the side and say, told you so. <laughs> no, not quite. The day of visitation here actually has as the idea 
that they may actually glorify God because of you when they themselves are visited by the grace of God. That there will come a day they'll thank God for you when they've been visited by the grace of God, the favor of God, and you demonstrated to them that there was another way, there was a better way to live, and there was a greater day coming, they will glorify God on the day of visitation. Friends, listen, we are not called. Our mission is not to win arguments. Our mission is to win souls. Perhaps they won't listen to a sermon. I mean, you've given them the best CDs you can. Some of mine, probably. (laughs) They won't listen. I have people all the time bring me CDs of my messages that they found in garage sales. (laughs) I I have CDs that line the box out front of my cage. Oh, yeah. They won't listen to your sermons. They won't, maybe they won't listen to a sermon, but listen, they can watch your sermon. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. So the poet said. What's Paul call us? Living epistles seen and read by all men. Recent months, I've been talking to a brilliant young man about the things of Christ. Very skeptical of religious things, Christianity in general. But it's amazing what God has done in his life. But let me tell you, what has convinced him most of our faith is not my times of sitting with him and doing apologetics. What has convinced him most is the lives of his loved ones that are being changed by God's grace. And he said, I can't deny it. He can sit there over coffee and argue with me, but he can't argue with the changed lives of his loved ones. And I'm praying that the day of visitation will come to him soon. Key word here, key word of the whole passage, the, the key word of the rest of this section of 1 Peter is be subject. You see it in verse 13? Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Verse 18, servants, workers, be subject. And then he gets down in chapter three, verse one, and talks about the marriage life, husbands and wives. Be subject to one another in love. Now here's the question. Will you? Will you do it for Jesus? 
I'm not asking you to do it for your boss or your mom and dad or for your employer or for the president or for Congress. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Will you do it for Jesus? I wonder if you will. Will you say, Jesus, in my marriage, I surrender all? Jesus, as a teenager, I surrender all. Jesus, that store where I work, I surrender all. Jesus, this hatred that's in my heart, this pain, for your sake, I surrender all. Let's bow our head. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I wonder this morning as we are about to sing, do you mean it? Will you do it? Will you, for Jesus' sake, set aside your quote-unquote rights, your quote-unquote privileges? Will you set aside your personal convictions? Will you set aside your pain, your frustration? Will you set aside the hatred that you feel in your heart? All to Jesus, I surrender. Maybe you just like to surrender that to him right now. Let's quiet.